Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Friends, it's been such a privilege to be with you. Um, I've been so warmly welcomed, and it's just wonderful to see your hunger to grow in a knowledge of the most beautiful Lord and Saviour. And um, we're going to come on now to our last, our last hero, and um, Jonathan Edwards. And I've just got a couple of um, recommendations from the bookstall um, that I would press on you. We're going to look at Jonathan Edwards. This is um, a biography of Edwards. Um, he's got the most extraordinary life. Very, very interesting life. Very worthwhile. And this biography will get inside his head well. So that's um, very well worth reading. And um, a work of his, basically this is a little collection of sermons called Charity and Its Fruits. So you could just read one sermon, you could pop it down for a year, come back, read another sermon. It's really easy. Um, and um, it's basically, it's his lectures on, uh, or, or sermons on um, love, on 1 Corinthians 13. And particularly the last one, Heaven, a World of Love, is heart-popping. It's amazing stuff. We'll be looking a little bit at charity and its fruits um, together. Well, Jonathan Edwards, we've got him here. Okay, now, it really doesn't look it, does it? But it doesn't look like he knows how to enjoy God. (laughs) It's the wig, isn't it? Why? Why would he do it? Um, The thing was, wigs were cool. So it was like, you know, wearing the latest quiff or something. Well, sort of. Um, But it was cooler, anyway, to wear a wig. Um, And even though he doesn't look it, remember, he's sitting for a portrait. And he was, in fact, if you read his biography, he was a joy-filled, very, very affectionate husband, dad, and believer. Very affectionate, warm guy. Um, Now, the only thing you really need to know about um, Jonathan before we pile in is he was a British pastor um, (laughs) at... In the first half of the 18th century, um, he lived in New England, um, in America, which at the time when Jonathan was living, this was a happy Eden of a colony before the terrible fallen rebellion against the right ruler. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get a lift to the airport now, am I? <laughs> um, anyway, Edward's day, it was the day of the Enlightenment. Um, Um, in the 1700s, of days of rationalism. And so there were people in Edward's day who were saying that as Christians, we are to know about God, full stop. So let's do lots of theology, cool. But we can stop there, really. Know the truth of the gospel. Edward's could not have disagreed more. Now, uh, I'm going to recommend another book. I don't know if this is on the bookstall. Um, but maybe it could appear in the bookshop at some stage. A couple of years ago, um, a guy called Dane Ortland, a lovely guy, Dane Ortland, wrote a fantastic little book I would highly recommend called A New Inner Relish, Christian Motivation in the Thought of Jonathan Edwards. And he sums up um, things like this. He says, if post-enlightenment thought is right 
in saying that the cognitive, the mental, is more important than the affective, your, your affections, your desires, well, then let's sign up demons to teach our next evangelism explosion seminar because they understand the truth of the gospel better than anyone. Isn't that a good point? But another way exists because what makes demons fundamentally different from saints? Saints delight in God. Demons gnash their teeth at him. This is James 19. If you were here last night, we read it. You believe there is one good, one God, good. Even demons believe that and shudder. So simply believing the truth, acknowledging that is true, is, is not Christianity. What marks out the believer is not mere understanding of the truth, but a new inner relish, a delight in God. And this was something that I find Edwards exceptionally helpful on. Now, Edwards himself, let's move from Dane, who I also love, um, to Jonathan. And here's how Jonathan put it. He said, The devil once seemed to be religious in Luke 8. In Luke 8, the devil saw Jesus. He cried out. He fell down before Jesus. And the devil, with a loud voice, said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. Here, says Edwards, is external worship. The devil is religious. He prays. He prays in a humble posture. He falls down before Christ. He lies prostrate. He prays earnestly. He cries with a loud voice. He uses humble expressions. I beseech thee, torment me not. He uses respectful, honourable, adoring expressions. Jesus, thou Son of God most high. Nothing was wanting or lacking but love. And so, Edward says, we can pray, we can do all sorts of Christian stuff, behave outwardly with the appearance of holiness, but if we do not actually have a heartfelt love for God, it's like this. He said, if a wife should behave very well towards a husband, but she doesn't actually love him, but she has some other motivation, e.g. she wants to get some money out of him or whatever. Is the, and the, if, say, the husband knows this, is the husband going to delight in her performance any more than if a wooden image were contrived to make respectful motions in his presence? Yeah? If she doesn't love him, but she's just going, can I make you tea, my dear? <clears throat> you go, oh, my wife, my sweet wife. No, no, that doesn't appear appeal to him at all. And one of Edward's, I think he's meaning you to laugh, but we're laughing at our hypocrisy as Christians. This is what we do. We think we can fool God with our externalism. One of Edward's greatest um, works was a book he wrote called The Religious Affections. And there he summarizes what he was trying to say. He says, true religion in great part consists in holy affections, holy loves, desires, which, by which he means the true convert is palpably moved to love for Christ and joy in him. And that's what it is to be a Christian. It is to have, to be brought to have, affections for God. 
And so he said, the first thing that God does in saving us, the first thing God does is he gives the heart a divine taste or sense. He causes it by the Spirit. He opens our eyes and causes us to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. And indeed, get this, this is all the immediate effect of the divine power that there is. This is all that the Spirit of God needs to do in order to a production of all good effects in the soul. So, to nurture a Christian in holiness, all that the Spirit needs to do is cultivating us this relish, this desire. And so we begin to desire Christ more than other things. Now that word, um, sweetness, is very key for Edwards. Um, Edwards sees that having a sense of the sweetness of God is really what marks out the converted. So what he does is he compares two men. He says, okay, we've got two men. One man understands that honey is sweet. Yes, honey is sweet, I know that. The other man, he says, loves honey and is greatly delighted in it because he knows the sweet taste of it. See the difference? I know that honey is sweet. I love honey. Yeah? It's two rather different things. And he's saying, so it is with conversion. It's not merely, I understand that God is sweet. It's, I've tasted and seen I now have a sense of an appreciation for that sweetness. And that is why, Edward says, God has given us preachers. He's thinking particularly of pulpit ministry, but it applies to us all as we encourage each other. He says, God gives us preachers, not that we might hear mere expositions of the Scripture which do not stir our affections. No, he says... God has ordained preaching to affect sinners, to turn hearts, to affect sinners, to stir up the minds of the saints, quicken their affections by bringing the things of religion before them in their proper colours and particularly to promote those two affections in them, love and joy. Do you see overall where he's going? He's seeing being a Christian is about loving, delighting in, enjoying Christ. And so sin, as for Sibs, is about a hardness, a coldness of heart. And such a heart that has no true love for God cannot produce any true good. It can only produce sham, external, false good. And so he's very wary of those sorts in his day who are sceptical of affections and who were teaching that, no, religion is all about the intellect simply choosing the logically correct path. And he said, those who condemn high affections in others are certainly not likely to have high affections themselves. So, how then? How? Let's get rid of them. How then can we grow in a heartfelt, sincere, real enjoyment of God? How? How can we grow to truly enjoy God? 
And you see, this is something deeper than simply being grateful for his salvation. It's actually enjoying God himself. How can we enjoy God like that? Very simply, by knowing that God is supremely enjoyable. And of course, this is the real reason why we don't want to spend time with the Lord, isn't it? Really, why do you not spend more time with the Lord? Because you're finding other things you think are more enjoyable than him. Right? That's actually it. Which you know is wrong, but you think it. So somehow you're captive to a lie. That's interesting. We think other things are better. Enter Edwards and get this shocking statement. He says, God is God and is distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them chiefly by... I'd love to know how you'd finish that. God is God, distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them chiefly by... Fill in the blanks for yourself. What would you say? Chiefly by... His divine beauty. Wow. Now, I think what's especially surprising here is this is holiness language. Right? God is distinguished from, set apart from. To be holy, holy words in the Bible uh, is set apart. To be holy is to be set apart in the Bible. Okay, that's what the words mean. Um... But, you know, I think there's all sorts of problems that come from hearing that. So, if to be holy is to be set apart, here's where I start going wrong. I start thinking, okay, so God is holy, which means he's set apart. Hmm. Problem is this. I'm lovely. I'm just delightful. So, if God's set apart from me, well, what's wrong with him? Right? Because I I know I'm, I'm just delightful. So God set apart from me, there's some problem in him. And so we tend to think that holiness is a prissy, prim, priggish, puckered thing. Yeah? To be mean. Not as lovely as me. Because I'm lovely, aren't I? And if God's set apart from me, he can't be as lovely as me. So holiness seems an off-putting thing. And I think this is how people talk sometimes. You know, I hear the sort of language of saying, yes, God is loving, but he's also holy. As if holiness is something that's unloving. A, a different side to God that sort of stops him from being too loving, perhaps. Right? That is not how it is at all. And is certainly not how Edwards is seeing it. He says... Holiness is, as it were, the beauty and sweetness of the divine nature. See, here's the thing. Here's where I went wrong in my thinking about holiness. I thought, well, I'm lovely, so if God's set apart from me, the problem is with him. The reality is, I'm the cold, selfish, vicious one, And he is set apart from me in that he is not like that. Yeah? It is 
that there are no such ugly traits in him as there are in me. And thus he is holy. He is all beautiful, perfect, pure in his love, not abusive. So, do you see, his holiness is not moderating, cooling his love. His holiness is the perfection of the purity of his love. Which is why, in his purity, he so lovingly hates evil. Because true love hates what is evil. And so in reality, God is more attractive. That is his holiness. Beautiful. Beautifully loving. More delightful, more enjoyable than anything else. Do you know that? Let's try to press in to see that. If you don't see that God is more beautiful than anything else, my friend, it's because you've not seen God aright. But when you sense that, he, Edward says, that is once brought to see, or rather to taste, the superlative loveliness of the divine being will need no more to make him long after the enjoyment of God. Isn't that striking? That is how you come to enjoy God. His spirit opens your eyes to see the God I wake up and imagine unloving, ungracious, abusive, dark in his love is not the living God. The living God is the Father of mercies, beautiful in his holiness. His holiness is beautiful. Because the beauty of this loving Father, in whom there is no darkness at all. And that's so essential for us today, as Christians. I think Christians failing to see the beauty and utter delightfulness of this God, this is why so many Christians are spiritually limp, fretful, hollow, because imagining that God is not supremely desirable, of course they desire other things more than him. No wonder. But he that is once brought to see or rather to taste the superlative loveliness of the divine being will need no more to make him long after the enjoyment of God. To enjoy, not to use God so that I can get heaven for myself, but this God's so, God, so good, I, I want to enjoy this God. Now, I'm saying Edwards can help us here, but this is just a biblical insight. Flick with me to Psalm 27, for instance. Psalm 27, David says, Verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. There is one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord 
and to seek after him in his temple. You see, David doesn't think there is any darkness or ugliness hiding in this God. None. If you think there is, it's a misunderstanding. He's seeing that through and through, this Lord is so beautiful, so desirable, David would spend all his days simply enjoying, probing ever deeper into the sheer loveliness of God. Let me show you another one, Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Get this, even the sparrow finds a home. The swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King. My God. See, even the birds flocked to the temple in Jerusalem because the Lord who sat there in the Holy of Holies is so attractive, his presence so delightful, it seems even the animals could see it, even if we're too stupid. And so verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Know the Lord truly, and know him to be not simply one to whom we owe duties, but one who is more enjoyable than anything else. A day in his courts is better than a thousand spent seeking a name for yourself, spent seeking our pleasure in lust spent in self-righteous religiosity or anywhere else, a day in his courts is better. Now we could go to all sorts of places to see that, but I want you to try to grasp this so that you're getting a sense or taste of the superlative loveliness of God. And to do that, we could go to all sorts of places to see this, but I want to go to where Edwards saw it. And for Edwards, the heart of it was the concept of God's glory. And getting, let Edwards introduce you to God's glory, and I think you'll find it transforming. And so that we can savour God's beautiful desirability, I want to go exactly where Edwards went in the Bible. And I'm basically going to be running through one of his works called The End for Which God Created the World. Um, If you want to read it, then ignore the first chapter just read the second one, because the first chapter is just really complicated. The second chapter is genius. Okay? Now, so I'm basically going to be running through that. And here's where he went. He started with Ezekiel 1, was a sort of foundation point for him. Ezekiel 1. And we see in God's glory the most attractive God. Now, Ezekiel 1, uh, there's this great, great vision I just want to zero in on what's most critical for us here. So Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel sees four great living creatures carrying a throne. And it's the throne I want to zero in on. So some, from verse 26. Above the expanse over the heads of these living creatures was the likeness of a throne. 
in appearance like sapphire. Why, why sapphire? Do you know? What's sapphire associated with in the Bible? What does it look like? It's blue. It's always associated with the blue heavens. So this is a blue heavenly throne. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, in the midst of all this blue, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downwards from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, fire in the blue. What was this looking like? There was brightness all around, this fire, this brightness. This one looks like the shining sun, does he not? Set, in the, enthroned in the heavenly blue, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around, and such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Now, when Jonathan Edwards read this, he said, Christ in the gospel revelation appears as clothed with love, as being, as it were, on a throne of mercy and grace, a seat of love encompassed about with pleasant beams of love. Love is the light and glory which are about the throne on which God sits. Love is the light and glory which are about the throne on which God sits. And what I want to do is I want to show you Edward's argument to show, you might see, how's he getting that from Ezekiel 1? That's not immediately obvious to me. He's arguing it brilliantly. I think he's absolutely on the money here. Here's why. Edwards argues by looking at the word glory, first of all. And he goes, okay, what does the word glory mean? Well, the word glory in Hebrew literally means heaviness or weight. So, for example, um, Eli falls backward off his stool and breaks his neck because he was very glorious. (laughs) Heavy, yeah? And so the glory of something is its substance, its bulk, its mass, its weight, its what makes it up. It's God's glory then is his essence. It's uh, what he is. It's what he's essentially like. Which means, this is important to know, glorifying God is not about bigging him up, inflating him somehow, making him better, to add to him. You cannot. Now, when you give God the glory, you are simply ascribing to him what is already his. So the question is, what is God's weight and substance and mass? What is he essentially like? And what's really surprising is Ezekiel 128, the light the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is like light shining out. 
And Edwards notes, you see this throughout the Bible. I'll take you to a few, few instances. God's glory being like light shining. You see it here. Flick on to Ezekiel 10. Let's just flick to a, a few. Ezekiel 10, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel 43, we read, The earth shone with his glory. Tell you what, um, flick to Isaiah 60. Flick back to Isaiah 60. And just whilst you're flicking to Isaiah 60, do you remember Jesus' transfiguration? When we're told, Peter and James and John, see Jesus' glory. What does it look like? His face shining like the sun. What glory streams from him. Well, okay, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but like the sun. The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Do you see a lot of sun connection here? It's interesting, isn't it? Think Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. How, Psalm 19? What is specifically mentioned in the heavens? The sun is like a bridegroom. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And so, as it were, as the sun shines the earth is given a taste of his glory. Flick with me to Luke 2. Or maybe you'll just remember this. Luke 2. Do you remember the shepherds are abiding in the fields? And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. This is the glory of God. The glory of God is like light shining out, unspotted, no darkness, light, driving away darkness and always shining out. And that is what God in his innermost being is like. He is a sun of light, life, warmth, always shining out. And you see, because that's a self-giving thing, shining out, that's why Edwards can say, love is the light. Because it's about self-giving. Make sense? Yeah, do. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Moses' face shines with God's glory. Absolutely, thank you. We see many, many more instances. Exactly. So, we're seeing that with this God, you've not got a God who is above love, who one day thinks, hmm, I'm going to today be generous. No, no, this God is outgoing, loving. His glory is shining out, spreading, generous, overflowing love. Here's not an empty God. Here's a God so full of life and goodness that he overflows. So here's Edwards again. He says, What God has in view in neither of them, neither manifesting his glory to the understanding nor communication to the heart, his giving his glory, is not that he might receive, but that he might go forth 
the main end of his shining forth is not that he might have his rays reflected back to himself, but that the rays may go forth. Do you see? He's all about shining out. And as we see his glory, it evokes praise in us. We enjoy his glory, but his aim is to shine out his glory that we might enjoy it. And that is why Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is called the radiance. The radiance or the brightness of the glory of God. For Jesus Jesus is the radiance of his Father, the shining of his Father's bright glory. And as such, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Exactly showing us just what God's very being is like. The glory is perfectly embodied in Jesus. For he goes out from the Father. That is this God's glory. Spreading the goodness of the Father. And so, as we see Jesus coming to us, humbling himself from the courts of heaven, coming to us, bringing the love of the Father to us, that is the glory of God coming to us. Do you see what a glory? Not a proud glory. Not a proud glory. But the glory of humble self-giving love. God's innermost being brought to us and shown to us in the form of a servant. Dying to give us life. And if you really want to be blown away, now turn to John 12. Which is where Edwards turns next. John 12. And here you will see something you would never dream of. John 12, verse 23. John 12, 23. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? What does it mean for the Son of Man to be glorified? Next verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will be my servant also. He's speaking about his death, of course. Now, Jesus is the glory of his Father. Shining out from the Father, perfectly enlightening us to see what the Father is really like. And now, Jesus himself is to be glorified. That is, we're going to see Jesus innermost weight and being displayed publicly. And what does it look like? It looks like a seed dying to bear fruit. The cross 
is the moment when Jesus is glorified, most clearly seen to be who he is. And so on the cross, we see the glorification of the glory of God. And so on the cross, we see the deepest revelation of the heart of God. And it is all about laying down his life to bear fruit, to give life. This is not a needy, greedy God, is it? This is not a God who wants to grasp. This is a God who needs nothing. As life, fullness, fellowship, before anything else exists. He has life in himself, and so much so, that he's brimming over with it. His glory is giving, and he delights to do it. And so you see the cross and put to death all your pompous and unkind idols. This is what God is like. And, and remember, it's not that Jesus is dragged to this death unwillingly. No, no, he says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He wills to go to this. He wills to give his life away. And you see the seriousness of his love there. I mean, just think, okay, just imagine, just imagine that you had control of 12 legions of powerful angels. Okay? You've got the go button. At any moment, anyone ticks you off, you can press the go button and they will rain terror and death down on your enemies. Now, let's have you stripped naked, beaten, flogged, ridiculed. It would take the most absurd restraint not to cry, get them boys, slaughter the lot. What? Restrained, kind, self-giving love. That is glory. Now with all that under our belts, I'm going to pose you a riddle. Come with me to Isaiah 42. Okay. Isaiah 42 and verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Okay? Now, just that. Keep a finger in Isaiah 42. We're going to come back to it. And flick with me to John 17 again. John 17, verse 22. Where Jesus says to his Father, John 17, 22, Father, the glory you've given me, I've given to them. Oh, oops. No, no, no. Jesus, you can't do that. We've not read Isaiah 42. I'm the Lord, that's my name, my glory, I do not give to another. So what's going on? 
How do you put the two verses next to each other? Do we just say, ah, oh, yeah, the Bible's full of contradictions? How do they fit together? Well, come back to Isaiah 42. And you see something wonderful about the gospel in this. You see, the Lord who speaks here is not a single-person God. A solitary, lonely God who's just hugging himself, saying, my glory I give to no other. It's all mine, 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 mine. No. Look, the Lord here, verse 1, is talking about his servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I hold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He'll not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Who's he talking about? His spirit-anointed servant, Christ, the Lord is speaking about. And in verse 6, he comes to speak to his servant. And the Father says, I'm the Lord, I have called you my servant in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light. Interestingly, of course, a light for the nations. Of course, the glory of God will be a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. See? And so, here the Father is giving his glory to his Son, but he'll give it to no other. Now, this is so revealing. It's not a reluctant, limiting thing at all, as if the Father wants his glory, his love, to spread only so far. No, no, no. It is that the Father pours all, all his blessing out, only, only on the Son. The Father pours out all his blessing on the Son his chosen one in whom he delights. He anoints him with the Spirit. But, having poured all his blessing out on the Son, the Father then sends the Son to share with us his fullness. So that the love with which he has been loved might be in us. The glory you've given me, he says, I've given to them. Now, this is the best news in the world. For it means that salvation is not just God's sprinkling little blessings from on high. No. He doesn't want servants who approach him on the basis of some vague or small blessing. And so he only blesses his son. And then... His Son shares with us all that is His, as His Father told Him to. From His fullness we receive. Which means that salvation is about being caught up into that loving relationship between the Father and the Son. To share that love The Spirit turns my heart 
that I become God-like. What is that? What is God like? Well, what has the Father eternally been about? Loving his Son. And so when I love Jesus, I am most like the Father. And when I love the Father, that's when I'm being most like the Son. That's godliness. All on the basis of this relationship I've been caught up into. The Father has blessed his Son and I've been united to the Son to share what is his. Is this not a God we can enjoy? Pure, shining light, goodness, kindness, overflowing. And how do you enjoy him? Know him aright? Look as he reveals himself in his word. My friends, our God is the beauty of beauties. And his innermost being, his glory is the warming, spreading, shining goodness of outgoing love and he shines it all on us freely, maximally in Jesus. What a God. Let's pray. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we are so delighted in you that your glory is such a loving, warming light And you've shone that glory into the cold darkness of our lives. Our Father, when we see you are right, we always want more. So come by your Spirit and work in us a deeper taste for you, I pray. Blow away the idols. Let the light scatter our darkness. And so make us rejoice to make you known as you are to ourselves, to each other, to the world. And so may your glory resound. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy Union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of Union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.